Welcome to the Athlete Performance Education Podcast, where we aim to educate, empower, and excel athletes and coaches to the next level of performance. Welcome back to another episode of the APE Show. In today's episode, I'm incredibly excited to introduce our next guest as part of the Coaching Masters series, Derek Hansen. Derek is an international sports performance consultant with over 30 years of experience working in a range of different collegiate, professional sports, and Olympic-based sports settings. In today's conversation, we explore a range of topics, including Derek's experience working with the late, great Charlie Francis around speed development in a track and field setting. We look at how we can apply these principles in field and team-based sports, and we also explore how and what Derek thinks about the current injuries that we're seeing around professional sports across the world. In and amongst this is another range of great nuggets of information and wisdom that we can all take from Derek's experience. Really hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're interested about finding out more about Derek's work, you can check out his website's websites sprintcoach.com as well as runningmechanics.com. These are great for both athletes and coaches looking to improve their speed development for their sport. Sit back, enjoy, and hopefully you take something from it. Thank you for making time for, for jumping on for the recording today. Um, I'd just love to start with a little bit about you. So obviously you've worked in a few different areas, track and field, um, sports performance, strength and conditioning. How do you sort of describe yourself to people these days? It's a good question. Um, I mean, most of the work that I'm doing right now would be um, along the lines of like consultant for, you know, pro teams and, um, you know, collegiate teams, um, some individual stuff where I work with people remotely, remote coaching, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I have all of my sort of educational courses that I'm working on. So, there's an education and teaching component. And then, you know, pretty much everything is a teaching gig, right? Because I have to do something in a couple of days with the staff for a pro ice hockey team. And um, it, it is really just teaching all the staff how to go about, you know, improving speed qualities for their sport. So, and, and we get into a lot of areas, like you could say that I, um, you know, specialize in speed, but in order for that to work, you have to make sure a lot of other things are in place and integrated properly because you can say like, oh, I'm a speed expert, but if they have a very heavy uh, lifting or weightlifting resistance training emphasis, as you know, you just can't drop stuff in and go, oh, and do this too um, because there has to be integration and there has to be, you know, you can only fill a cup of water to the rim and then what do you do? Do you just keep spilling it over and so you have to take a few things away and you have to justify why you want your work to be done, which is an, it's an entire educational process. Um, and, and some people are very tied to what they do. Like, you know, oh, you mean I can't do every Olympic lift that I like doing normally? It's like, well, not really necessary if you play field hockey or whatever. Right. So it's, it, it, there, there's some selling, there's some educating, um, and there's a feeling out process with everything I do. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the emphasis around the teaching side of things, whether it be with staff or athletes or, um, philosophy around, around training performance. Like it's, it's part of our name. We really associate strongly with that. So it's cool to hear that from a diverse range of, um, of work you've done and it sort of all comes back down to teaching and, and that education side of things. Um, just sort of building on for that. And the first topic I wanted to explore today was um, a little bit of the history around, around your work and the influence of, of Charlie Francis. Um, I'm interested to pick your brains firstly about how did that um, relationship come about and, and what was sort of some of the big, um, big areas that influenced your career even up to today? Yeah, I would say if if you were an athlete, a track and field athletics athlete in the 70s and 80s, um, you were influenced by people like Charlie Francis um, and the people who influenced him, whether it was Gerard Mock or anybody else in the Canadian system during that time. Um, everything trickled down to the youth level and which is which was good because I don't think it happens as much anymore. There's not as much um, sort of central control over coaching. Uh, everything now is like, well, you know, who do you follow? Who, who's on, you know on Instagram or whatever? And 
and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you know, as you know, there's a lot, there's a high degree of variability of efficacy of information out there. Some, some of it's good, some of it's useful, some of it is not. Whereas when you had say Gerard Mock come over from Poland and, and say like, this is what we're gonna do as a, as a country, everything trickled down pretty well. And I, you kind of take it for granted when you're a, a kid going to run track um, and you were being taught the drills and, and all of the cues around it. Um, and now I think a lot of the stuff that I do is based off of all of that information that was disseminated through the country. And some people have taken that and built on it and some people have just forgotten it. Um, so that's, I think that's a lot of the, the stuff that I'm teaching right now is about, okay, <clears throat> there were some good fundamental things that we learn. And from there, if, if you followed Charlie Francis, they had some success in the, in the sprint game. And uh, aside from all of the other, you know, stuff that happened, uh, it was pretty obvious that he knew what he was doing um, from a coaching point of view. And I had seen him in 1986 uh, when I was, you know, I would have been like 16, 17 years old. He presented um, uh, on, on his approach and uh, I attended that. I don't even know how I got into that room, but there were coaches there, a few athletes watching him do, I think he probably did about two or three, four hours of presentation. And, you know, even then at 16, 17 years old, you understood like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Very confident, had a very organized approach. And from there, um, after, you know, when I got into coaching myself, it was still established in my brain that this was somebody who was a source of information. And in the nineties, he was coaching his wife. And so I would see them at track meets where I was still competing. And then at some point I was coaching and they were still, I think they competed up until probably about 96, if I'm correct, maybe a little longer than that, but 96 up to the 96 Olympics. And and just had some, you know, he would be at the track meet and you go up and talk to him, ask him questions. He was very forthcoming with, you know, giving his opinion on stuff. And then by about 2000, 2001, I had um, tracked him down and he was doing a presentation or a, a seminar in Santa Clarita, California at uh, Alan Cosgrove's facility there. And there was a very small group of people who met and, you know, Charlie did two hours of, of teaching and I kind of connected with him a little more solidly in that occasion. And I said, listen, um, all your information is very good. I can help you, you know, to help do infographics and, and help explain all of your concepts a little clearer. And then he thought, okay, well, that's good. Well, you come out to Toronto and we'll spend time together and we'll work on this. And if you have any athletes, bring them along and we'll coach them too. Um, and that was, you know, that's really how we really started working together. Um, for in an, it was almost about 10 years that we worked together before he passed. And um, again, just being with him, uh, involved with coaching people at the track and seeing how he did things was very important for me understanding concepts and how to do it, um, you know, in a practical sense. Like it's, it's one thing to read his stuff, but when you actually work with somebody, uh, it can be very different. And so there's a lot of information out there that, that is useful that he put out. But, you know, to really peel the onion back and, and really get in there and understand why he did what he did, it took some time. It took some time for me to understand, um, you know, I would say even like well beyond his passing where I'm like, okay, I kind of get what he was saying. I wish I could have talked with him a bit more about this. But you know, like I said, uh, eight to 10 years of investing time into trying to understand his materials and working with him, um, I think has given me a very good background. And then there were connections, you know, he was close with Al Vermeil and some other strength coaches, Al Miller, who both worked in the NFL and NBA. Um, I made a connection with Rob Panarello, who's a physical therapist and strength coach out of New York City. Um, and then, you know, Don Chu knows all of those guys. So there's a good network of people, all, all of which now are, you know, they're quite, they're quite old, like Don Chu's in his eighties. The other guys are in their seventies, uh, Rob's in his sixties. Um, but it's still a good source of information to give you a foundation. And, and from there, 
you know, my knowledge has kind of expanded and, you know, uh, still talk with them on a weekly basis. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. It's a, there's a couple of great stories in there as well, which I think is really useful, um, you know, for up and coming coaches as well to understand the value of, of in, in your sense, when you approach Charlie and say, Hey, this is what something I can offer you is showing, you know, as a young coach, how you can add value to, to someone's work already. Um, and then I love the other aspect there where you're talking about how, um, you know, you, you see how it's more about concepts and, and, and models as opposed to sets and reps and direct prescription. And I've heard you speak about this in the past. Um, and as I've tried to define, I guess, as having a, a set program where you know what every, every set and rep and exercise is going to be for a long period of time versus the idea of having a framework to work within um, that helps design your training for day-to-day variations and fluctuations. And from, from what I've been able to gather from his work and, and your interpretations of that is it seems to be, it's more of a point of having a framework to work within. So when you, when you go to coach the athlete on the day, you can say, Hey, look, we've got it. We don't need to do the prescribed amount. And one thing I see sort of with, with, with our interns and stuff coming out of, of university and stuff is the rigidity of the framework they have to work in, whether they're abiding by, by research um, frameworks or, or study frameworks that they think they have to apply directly. It seems like, his way of thinking was a bit of a different school of thought. Is that sort of true interpretation or do you have any thoughts on that sort of idea? Yeah, it's, it is very much about, you know, teaching people how to fish, right. Rather than giving them a fish. Right. So that whole proverb where if you teach somebody how to coach, um, they, there's not heavily reliant on rote, you know, information where it's like, okay, here's the program, follow this. And, you know, as you know, stuff changes, stuff changes all the time, whether um, training load from, from their sport practice, uh, injuries, and things change all the time. And even just mood, if you're just measuring mood, as you walk into a training scenario, and you're like, okay, what I had planned, probably won't work. And so I had an example, just the other day, I'm helping out with my son's school, volunteering to coach. And then the guy who normally coaches, he's like, yeah, I can't make it. I have to, I have to take off. You're in charge. And so I'm like, I don't know anything about these kids. I just show up. And if I was really uptight about, you know, what number is the correct number and what, and I just head out there. I'm like, okay, well, how are you guys feeling? Uh, what have you guys done? And then we just kind of build, from drills and reps and you kind of get an idea of what they need to work on. Um, and it flows better as opposed to following a checklist, which for the most part is probably pretty arbitrary to begin with. Whereas I'm trying to look at each rep and go, okay, they did well at that. Let's either keep doing it and develop some more, or they're very weak in this area. So let's spend some time trying to fix that before we move forward. Um, so I, I just think having this sort of conceptual framework of roughly, you know, where you should be at any given time. And that's what Charlie did. We go to the track and who knew, who knew what was going to happen? We had a general idea that we're going to work on starts or we're going to work on uh, maximum velocity or speed endurance or, or whatever. Right. But, and then, you know, he's had what, 30 years of experience of putting that together. Um, so he can kind of look at the situation and go, Oh, that reminds me of, you know, five years ago we did, you know, and so he has an idea working in his head of where they should be at any given time based on experience, as opposed to this is what I wrote. This is what we're going to do, which I think is significantly more arbitrary than showing up and, and making up something that you think fits the scenario. So, um, you know, I'm not anti like, you know, write a program, but certainly on the implementation side, you have to have flexibility, you have to have awareness, you have to have intuition to guide you into the right sort of path, um, especially if you have a large group of people you're working with, um, you know, because there's so many factors and variables. So I think I'm a huge proponent of teaching people how to assess the situation and give their marching orders on the spot as opposed to, okay, yeah, you know, this is week six. This is where we should be because, you know, when I'm planning this seven weeks ago, when I put the program together, how the heck should I know what week seven should be? It, you, you can't, you know, we're not, nobody is that smart. 
you know, you could probably say, well, we use the, and, and I know a lot of coaches say, well, we use the same program with, you know, athletes 20 years ago and they all did well. And it's like, okay, I get that. But still you, you have to have the ability to pivot and think on your feet and, you know, move things around a bit because every athlete is different and every day is different. So um, that's kind of the way I operate. Um, so I don't really have any stress about, am I giving the right workout on the day? Um, because we're all kind of, you know, we're all kind of guessing. Let's be honest. We're all guessing. Um, and we're just what we're trying to come up with the best guess for that particular day. Um, so I, I'm, I'm rather comfortable now with that. You know, now that I'm turning 52, that I have an idea of where I want to be generally. And I will make, um, you know, precise decisions on the day that I feel are appropriate based on what I see in front of me. So. No, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a great insight to, to that thought conceptualization approach as opposed to just that rote learning do as, um, do what I say. Um, sort of building on from some of your thoughts there, I mean, should obviously you work in a, in a wide range of st- settings and, and you've probably been exposed to um, so many more opportunities of variation with athletes than just say working at the same team for, for a period of time. From, from your assessment experience, what do you find yourself working on most with athletes? One from, I guess, a, a physical training side of things, another from, I guess, an attitudes, mental side of things. Are there things that stand out that you sort of come back to when you're, when you're working with athletes either for the first time or, or ongoing? Yeah, the most important thing is to establish some level of trust um, and some form of communication that works for that athlete. Um, that's the biggest thing. Like you have to establish some sort of credibility and, and, you know, thankfully I have enough, a long enough resume that I can say like, okay, I've worked with this team and, you know, but that does wear out if you can't connect with the athlete. So I think whether I'm working with 15, 16 year olds, uh, you know, like my son uh, and his friends or his teammates, or I'm working with, you know, 30 year olds who make $20 million a year. Um, you still have to have some sort of connection and some sort of trust in that relationship to move it forward and create a long-term, uh, a successful long-term relationship. Because if you can't create a successful long-term relationship, you're not going to have um, enough time to really improve somebody. Like, you know, I've been in scenarios where I walk in and I teach people for a day or a week and, and I walk away going, well, will that, will that continue to happen once I leave? And most of the time it doesn't because there hasn't been continuity and there hasn't been a consistency of applying the same principles. Some, some people who bring me in do a good job of continuing that. Some people don't, they do like flavor of you're you're kind of the flavor of the month consultant coming in and, and they call it professional development um, or continuing education. But I, I think there is a, there's a problem these days of like, who is the flavor of the month? Let's bring them in and, you know, okay, well, what do you do with that information? How do you integrate it into what we already do? And so what ends up happening is one of two things. Most of the time, one is they bring in, you have a good week with weekend with them and they learn stuff and then they do nothing with it. They don't, they don't advance it. The other is they take what you're doing and then they just layer it onto everything else without stripping things away that may be unnecessary and combining things in a way that work together Um, that doesn't happen. So, you know, what you would hope they would do is, again, they bring your information in on a conceptual level, and then re-examine what they do as a whole and go, okay, well, let's pull this out, because this makes more sense. Um, Let's do more of this and, and, and figure out all those proportions. And I think that's, you know, working with staff, that's what I would like to see. So there's an evolution, and there's a long term relationship to help get to that point where your information is integrated properly with the athlete, you need, you know, you need a good amount of time to, to, to improve somebody. I'm usually finding that I need a probably about six to eight weeks to start affecting change. Like I, I see that all the time. The people who train with me, if you see me once a week for four weeks, no, nah, it's not going to do it. If you see me two to three times a week for six weeks to eight weeks, we're now we're talking. Um, but you know, it depends on their means, it depends on their commitment. And I think 
you everything has to be built towards developing a long-term relationship in order to affect a positive change and a lasting change. So I'm always trying to push for that is, okay, are you really serious about this? Do you want to spend some time at it? Um, and then it gets interesting and it's tough when you're working with professional athletes, because in some instances, they don't have a lot of off season time to focus on that, on the stuff that I'm doing. Um, or there's just not a will. They're like, ah, I played an entire season. I just want to relax for the next six weeks and I'll do a little bit of stuff. I'll do, you know, I'll work on my biceps and, and then they go back to training camp and then it starts over again. And they wonder why, how come I'm not faster or I'm slower? Or how come I'm getting injured more? And you see a bit of a downward spiral every year in a pro athlete's career because they're not investing that off season time, you know, Having said that, like if I was making $20 million a year guaranteed and there wasn't a huge incentive and my team was kind of average and I just had to show up, I don't know, maybe I'd be like that too. I, you know, do I, you know, do I have the drive to keep improving myself and go out and play 82 games? You know, maybe I wouldn't, but that's what I'm just telling it like it is. That's what I see is that there's a, there's a minority of players who really want to get better. And then there's everybody else who just will hopefully get by on talent, not get injured. Um, and that, that's a real big one. I think for me is like, you have to, you have to continue to train or you're going to see more injury. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that everybody, we have all these great techniques. We have all this great technology, but the injuries are pretty much the same or worse. So that's, you know, what is the missing link there? And I think it's, it, there's a commitment problem in terms of their off-season training and health and wellness great great it's a fantastic insight and we will we'll delve into injuries in a minute um just moving again down some of those training thoughts and, and more into speed um for, for the coaches out there when, when you're starting out the training process to get someone faster what where do you start with is it different with um the type of athlete you're working with or do you have a starting point whether from assessment perspective or from a training perspective that you like to to take everyone through before you then build them through your phases of training yeah every every scenario is different because again it goes back to like okay Oh, okay. How many times per week are we going to focus on this? Um, and you have to build your model around that availability question. So if somebody says, I have one day a week, well, then you got to come up with an approach that, that gets the most out of one day a week. If it's two days a week or three days a week, well, it gets more interesting. We can focus on a bunch of things and you may have a different emphasis every day. So say we do three days a week and I'm working with a, you know, a rugby player or a football player. Um, well, there's, there's different components we're going to work on over three days a week. One could be, uh, starts and short acceleration. Another day could be longer acceleration and one day could be max speed or some speed endurance component if they have longer runs on the pitch or whatever. So you, you break it down by what, you know, almost a needs assessment. What is your sport? Um, what do you want to get better at? What are your goals? Um, what's your injury history? Because that may that may impact my approach as well. If you're a chronic hamstring injury person, then we got to focus on mechanics a little more. Maybe spend more time in short acceleration to strengthen up the hamstring. Um, so, you know, it is very situational. But a lot of the time, the the overarching emphasis, like we want to make you a more efficient runner. Um, so that could be how you start. That could be how you accelerate. That could be upright mechanics, sprint mechanics, and making sure you understand what you should look like versus what you currently look like. So a lot of video is involved, um, and just building those key, um, basic elements into your running so that as we load you, the framework is solid. It's good. But if we skip through and we didn't emphasize mechanics. We're always going to run into a problem when we get up to higher volumes, higher speeds, something's going to break down. It'd be no different than being a mechanic for a formula one car and going, well, we'll worry about the tires later or the suspension. We just want more horsepower, right? You're going to run into problems. So I think you have to address things structurally and technically uh, at the outset when you're doing submax runs and building somebody up and then Again, you're just layering on the load and intensity 
and making sure that structure holds and the, the technique holds. And so that's probably the most important thing for me is somebody comes to me, we're going to make you much more efficient and effective from a biomechanical point of view. And then just let, like I said, layer on the load and, and intensity and velocity from there. And, and that's going to, one, it's going to yield better performance and you're not going to get injured as, as readily. So, you know, that's where I start. Yeah, I love that focus on the running efficiency side of things. Uh, yeah, from our experience working with athletes that come to us as a as a private entity, it's more of a case of, hey, my coach has told me to improve my acceleration, or I need to improve my my first step, or my uh, my top speed, or you know, keep straining hamstrings, whatever that circumstance might be. But when you peel it back to, well, we'll look at your running efficiency, and then we can identify it is an acceleration issue or it is a speed issue. It's kind of them telling you what they want and then also you finding out what they need. Um, I think so, there's a really great message in that. Building into the technical um, perspectives, again, so from your wide variety, are there common patterns that you see from a, from a sprinting perspective that you, you find yourself coaching more often than not? And what sort of, or what, what um, I guess, recurring factors do you find most in your coaching these days from a technical perspective? It is going to be um, establishing some standards and expectations around acceleration, I would say. And, you know, you could say start, but most most of the sports I'm working with, very few of them actually stat, start from a static start, right? So like, you know, two point, three point stance, whatever. Um, so I'm not so concerned about like, do they get off the line quicker? You always hear this like first step quickness uh, BS, right? And it's like, well, if you watch a sport, nobody's just standing still and then goes like track and field, sure, starting blocks, right? But other than that, there's there's there is a lot of motion and uh, you know motion before the acceleration. So I'm thinking of like maybe two, three, four, five, six steps. I want to make sure posture is correct. I want to make sure limb positions are in the right place, and I'll spend most of my time trying to establish that uh, from the outset and doing it different ways using different types of resistance you know whether it's hill sleds bands whatever to establish where i want them to be and an example would be um, you know doing the ice hockey one and if you look at athletes when they sprint on dry land versus on the, how they skate on the ice it's pretty much the same the first three four steps is the same sort of extension the same sort of body position and posture and if you can fix that on dry land it will transfer to skating um, so that's what i'm spending a lot of time on whether it's basketball again soccer american football um, any sport tennis might be the the a couple of strides into acceleration and making sure that the quality is there and that then once we have that biomechanical expectation established then it's repetition 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 where you're going to build strength power um resiliency and then you know just by loading on you know chronic repetitions you're going to develop specific endurance over multiple repetitions which is more important than aerobic endurance um you know doing a you know 1600 meter test or whatever people do nowadays is you know, how well do they accelerate over a hundred repetitions, you know, 10 meters times a hundred, right. I would love to see, you know, the decay there in velocity, um, with a certain break, like say you give them 30 second break, let's do a hundred tens. Let's see what happens. That is far more interesting to me than what you can run a mile and a half in. Um, so, uh, that's, that's what I'm really focusing on with every project right now is making sure we have the mechanics down for acceleration, early acceleration, and um, making sure that you know they're they're hitting the velocities that I want to see, and they can do that over multiple repetitions, um, and and have that base fitness established right away before anything else, because that's that's the key in most of these sports. Yeah, great. That's a great insight. I think that um, also shows how you can create that specificity for that more game speed which we hear some sort of coaches and stuff refer to when you're sort of saying, how good are you at the skill and the ability to perform the skill over and over again, similarly to how that, that, that responds into the sport. Um, 
one more here when just regards to the coaching side of things in terms of um, areas of improvement for, that other coaches um, can make to, to training speed obviously you work a lot in the consulting space and, and working with education educating coaching groups and staff in, in your opinion what sort of mistakes or areas of improvement do you see that coaches can improve on when they're sort of looking at training speed and I guess more in that context of um, of game speed or sports related speed yeah the the biggest most significant piece is everybody wants to move into what they call the sports specific realm far too early right so uh, i'll teach people how to accelerate and i'll say okay we're going to focus on 10 15 20 meter accelerations and and right away people want to throw in well can we get them to hold a ball, a stick? Can we get them to go around cones and have some sort of agility? And, and so right off the bat, I'm fighting the sports specificity issue where people think it has to look like their sport for it to contribute, right? Um, you know, to which my reply would be like, I don't know, put on your uniform and we'll do linear sprints. Is that sport specific enough for you? Um, but if you don't, again, if you don't establish these key requirements of acceleration in a linear fashion and, and, and build those mechanics, they're not going to be automatic when they hit the field. But if you spend all this time running around cones, which isn't specific to anything except running around cones um, and, and doing all these little ladder drills and everything, it's far less specific than what I'm trying to establish, which is you know, give me good four good initial strides out of acceleration, which works in every sport. Just watch sports. Um, and I think that's where people really lose perspective is they have this idea in their head that it requires equipment. It requires, you know, something that resembles their sport. And, and it doesn't. It does not. I, you know, um, certainly you have to be good in your sport. But that's what practice is for. That's what skill work is for. So as long as you separate those things out and you focus wholly on, um, you know, these basic qualities, acceleration, reaction time, uh, stride efficiency, uh, relaxation, all these things, that's the most important thing. And then it will come to light when they do their sport, uh, if they're doing it in the right amounts. And that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. And, and you'll see it on, I'll see it on multiple levels. I'll see, I'll hear it from, uh, obviously sport coaches like, Hey, uh, you know, the goal, look over the strength and conditioning coach's shoulder, like, Hey, you should do more sports specific stuff. Well, that's your freaking job, man. Like, leave me alone. Um, and then the other one is then the medical staff get on you. It's like, well, we need to do more direction change. Cause that's how they get hurt. Did you hear what you just said? We need to do more of something that gets them hurt. Um, so it's, you know, I get it from all directions. And then the strength coaches are anxious about everything because everybody's looking over their shoulder. So I guess I better make it look like, you know, the defensive coach, you know, or this guy or whoever is breathing down their neck. And then, you know, they lose their focus. You know, everybody talks about scope of practice, but nobody adheres to it. Right. And um, I think that's the biggest problem right now is that we don't have people that are just focusing on the necessary things. They're focusing on stuff that isn't necessary, nor is it specific. That's fantastic and, and really well put. I found, you know, from, from my experience as well, working with, with a couple of different sports clubs and stuff, it can really relate to some of those situations about scope of practice and, and sticking to what your role is there and the idea of where they're to develop a quality of speed of acceleration for them to then apply in, in the activity and then when you start fielding that itch where you get pressure from coaching staff, especially I guess for younger coaches, that challenge of appeasing to the staff as opposed to focusing on what they're there to do um, is a really important message. Um, you've touched on it a little bit and I'm really interested to pick your, pick your thoughts on this because you do a great job of documenting this on, on social media and stuff is the, the trends that occur, especially in professional sport regarding the injury rates. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of the current state of injuries that we're seeing in professional sports? Obviously, the NBA is going through a bit of a, a cluster of injuries for probably various reasons. Um, and I know you hosted a, a Zoom pop the other week um, with some great professionals discussing this. Have you drawn any sort of hypothesis or, or conclusions or, or areas that you see that might be contributing to this and, and what we might be able to do to fix it? Yeah, I do think it, you know, and, and again, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but um, 
a lot of people will bring up the same theme. So whether it's, and it does revolve around specificity. So um, I don't think you or I would argue that specificity or early specialization is bad because, you know, you're going to develop your sports specific skills early. And we've seen enough examples, mental health aside of how sports early specialization can advance people, whether it's uh, Tiger Woods or, um, you know, the, the tennis player, the, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Naomi, um, Osaka, Osaka. Yeah. Um, you know, she's obviously a, a great talent, but is having some issues now. And so, um, but we understand that early specialization will develop those skill sets to make you a, a high performer. Now, how do we get the b- best of both worlds where, um, you know, we can have the great well-rounded, you know, can, we, we have all these experts talking about multilateral development and multi-sport. Um, how do we balance that off with um, making sure that if people participate in multiple sports, it doesn't, you know, work against them. So like if, you know, and it's probably happening everywhere in the world where if you want to play tennis, then your tennis coach wants you to do it all year long when maybe you want to play basketball or maybe you want to run track too, which probably would ultimately build you into a better tennis player. But everything is kind of graded right now so that, well, by age 12, you should be here. And then age 14, you should be at this tournament and this, you know, and so if you get left out of that cycle, um, you get punished, right? If you don't, you know, go to that tournament and this. So there's a whole infrastructure uh, piece around sports that is making it more difficult for kids to be well-rounded. And I think that, you know, and we'll go back to the NBA example. We have kids playing um, in leagues all year long so that they can get the skills to get a scholarship or, you know, you know, make this team and, and then eventually do their one and done and make the NBA. And if you can hit, you know, three point shots, which, which requires a lot of skill, but doesn't require a lot of, uh, I would say, physical resiliency, um, you know, then where are you going to move your chips on your, you know, on the poker table, you're going to, or on, on the roulette wheel, right? You're going to put it all on three point shooting. And then it's like, oh, defense, uh, landing, you know, I didn't spend enough time on that. So we're going to have Achilles tendon ruptures at age 21 or so I, I think there's a huge driver of all this is let's be as specific as possible to the uh, detriment of other qualities that are going to preserve our health and preserve our longevity. And I think that's what it came back to is you have this macro example of youth development gone wrong. And then when, then even at the, you know, let's say at the NBA level, when you get to that point, it is, again, they have skill coaches, they have a shooting coach, they have probably have a ball handling coach, they probably have, you know, all these different people who are working on specifics all the time. And then when I say, when was the last time you worked on sprinting? Uh, they can't even remember grade seven, grade eight, I ran track. Um, so you have, you have this deficit of physiological training uh, at the expense of sports specific skill training. And I think that's creating problems. And then on top of it, you could argue that COVID, you know, has kind of turned the tables on people and we don't have a bigger off season. And I'm not a huge fan of that argument because you guys buggered away your off season before this anyways, right? Like you guys, you know, it's not like they're dedicated. It's not like, you know, the days when coach Ramil was with the Chicago bulls and guys like, Hey, let's get in the gym right after we lost our playoff, you know, let's get back in and let's work as a team that doesn't happen anymore. Um, there's a few athletes that'll work privately with, with certain coaches and strength coaches. And, and there's some good ones out there, but generally they want to, they want to have a good time and go, you know, do sand running or whatever it is. Um, um, with the with the tunes blasting and uh things are are left by the wayside good quality um training elements are left by the wayside and that's why we have more injuries um you could argue that sports science is creating problems too because now we're getting back to we got to hit a number we got to do you know rather than watching the full context of things right like you know oh we hit this velocity in the game so we're good well yeah but 
what did you do in training? Are you watching them in the off season and training to make sure they've had enough volume so that if they hit that velocity in season, it's not detrimental. They have enough reserve created that, you know, okay, if you hit 30 kilometers per hour, 32 kilometers per hour, five times in a match, is that safe? I don't know. What did he do in the off season? Well, he hit 40, you know, uh, once a week he'd hit 40 kilometers per hour. I'd be like, okay, that's great. Good job. Right. But we don't have that information. So I think, you know, it's so difficult. There's so many variables, uh, but it does start at the youth level and it's slowly, you know, things start to degrade as you get further in. And then at some point it's almost unsalvageable. Um, there was a great, if you go on YouTube, there's a great um, a discussion of like NFL um, salaries, right? So like Patrick Mahomes signed for $500 million. And then when you break down the contracts and how they're structured, he's not guaranteed that money, right? Um, he might get, you know, a, very, a small fraction of that if he were to get injured. Um, and everything is structured that way because they don't want to give people a lot of money because, you know, if he gets hurt, well, we can find somebody else. There's an endless pit of bodies that we can throw in and probably still succeed. You know, every NFL team is still going to make a lot of money once the stadiums are full, you know, and it does come down to money, unfortunately. And, you know, we'll find another star. You know, people rise and fall so quickly that somebody else will rise up next year and be the next superstar. So I think that's the problem too, is the money around everything is, is making players disposable and it's an entertainment industry. It's not a, it's not sports, it's, it's entertainment. So um, that was a long winded answer, but I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there that needs to be explored deeper. No, that's great. And look, it, it probably warrants a long winded answer because, you know, it's half the reason a lot of us have jobs. One of my main jobs is, is working in, in reconditioning and rehabilitation in, in the Australian football league. So um, there is a high relevance in terms of what we need to do there. Um, and I'm shaking my head a, a lot in the grants. And I think my, a lot of my learnings around the relationship between rehabilitation and reconditioning for sports has come from your influence purely around the attraction that you associate a lot of training around um, performance enhancement and the differentiation of your rehabilitation training, um, hamstring work I've heard you discuss and its association with general sprint training is really quite similar. It's just sort of the difference in how you um, dose it or prescribe it. Um, I'm interested to sort of, I don't know if I can put into a question, but we'll have a bit of a discussion around a performance enhancement approach to injury prevention or, or, um, or reconditioning versus what we see, whether it be on social media or with physical therapists and stuff around the, the BOSU ball balancing and the, the Nordic, um, the love for Nordics and, um, and eccentrically loaded exercises versus just actual training um, in a progressive manner that, that slowly stimulates appropriate doses to the athletes. What are your sort of, I guess, your general thoughts on this approach, um, whether you agree or disagree? And do you have sort of any extension to sort of the stuff I've just discussed? Yeah, again, that's a that's a that's a huge area to cover, but I think um, everything has to be about you know stress management and you know they call it load management, but it is a stress management issue in my estimation because again, you're looking at what kind of stresses are is somebody exposed to in their sport, and then you're trying to create a reserve around all of those things. So, okay, what is the minimum level of strength? And you could say hamstring strength. Um, as part of like a Nordic or a Nord board measure, right? Oh, we got a, you know, this is what, this is how strong your hamstring is. Okay, but you're not testing it at the speed where they're going to pull their hamstring, right? So now we have a very general measure of that may only fulfill a partial requirement for that hamstring, right? If, if you're lengthening at, you know, a meter per second and they have to run at 10 meters per second, you're 10 times off, right? Um, and the velocity is nowhere, you know, nowhere near where it should be. So you're fulfilling a specific requirement along, you know, a continuum, right? Great. You got that. But could I not do something like performance train and achieve all of the points along that curve, um, that would be encountered in your sport? I think where people, you know, like things like the Nordboard is they do get a number, right? Whereas, 
in order for you to understand somebody accelerating 10 meters and, and, you know, one, there's a velocity component, there's a biomechanical component. You have to be a good coach. You can't just stick somebody on a machine and hope it works out. Um, and you have to have a good eye too. So I think that's where a lot of this stuff falls to the wayside is that in order to be a good coach, you know, that it takes you know, more than 10,000 hours. Right. And a lot of people want to bypass that. And, and say, okay, well, I bought this machine and it's going to tell me where they need to be. Um, and, and we know that doesn't work very well. Um, and, and people will throw up studies and say like, well, uh, 70% of the people it works. Yeah, but I'm dealing with the 5%, right? At the top level, I'm not dealing with the, you know, the kid that volunteered, uh, you know, for the study at college who was a recreationally trained athlete. I, I'm working with the upper echelon who's very fast twitch and, um, you know, has a 40 inch vertical. So I think we have to be really careful with a lot of these uh, technologies. And we do have to start, you know, again, using a word like holistic or comprehensive, we have to train people a little more holistically um, in a way that is usable. And, you know, the balance training, you know, you know, that I, I, I thought we were past that, but certainly there's, there's a time and place to do balance training around, you know, joint proprioception, all that, but that usually passes really quickly. The adaptation there happens, you know, within a couple of days. Like if you have, like, I, I bought one of those, um, uh, it's like a skateboard, electric skateboard, but it's called a one wheel. Have you seen those? Oh, I've seen, it's like I've seen a big you post wheel. on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I bought one of those. I'm like turning, I'm in my fifties. And so I got on this thing and I'm like, I spent $1,500 on it. And I'm like, did I just waste money? Cause I can't stay on this thing, but it's all, it's got sort of this balancing gyroscopic thing. And when you lean, it goes faster. And when you go back, it slows down, but it, there's a proprioceptive component to it. Like your balance and all that. Um, not unlike snowboarding or surfing or whatever. So I get this thing. And it took me probably about, I would say it took me about oh, 10 days to a week, two weeks to get used to it. Right. And I think, but of course my kids jump on it and within a day they're fine. So they have, you know, better training ability, adaptability because they're young, but it did take me some time. And now I feel very confident on it. Right. And I don't have to, it's like riding a bike. So I think those types of qualities don't take long to train. So if you do it like, yeah, okay. Everybody's going to feel like they're a success story, but if you have to get somebody faster, and like I said, it may take eight weeks to get somebody faster because there's, it's a much more complex, um, you know, arrangement of qualities. So, you know, in rehab, you know, you have to have that same level of consistency and precision around movement and loading and, 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 and making things related to what their stresses are going to be in their game and, you know, different degrees of joint flexion and extension and blah, blah, blah. And the best way to do it for me has been a running based approach. Um, because most sports are running based, they have to, you know, locomotion, right. And, and even for ice hockey, I'll do a running based approach. Um, so, you know, if somebody can lift their knee up and do a march, you know, okay, they get the flexion of the knee and then they get into the stance phase, they get into extension. There's a load component. There can be an elasticity component if they do skipping or running high knees. Um, and then when you get somebody to accelerate, um, you know, things start speeding up to the speed that happens, you know, their brain has to function faster and uh, there's a coordination and a hindbrain component where it's a little more autonomic. And I think all of that is very, very useful. Whereas, you know, I've worked, I work in a PT clinic, you know, um, and I see what the therapists do and it's very different than what I do. Um, it's a little more, the, the exercises are more acyclical. The exercises are slower. The exercises have low loads, right? Where I'm on the other end of that spectrum, right? I'm trying to get people there quicker. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that my way is better, but I do tend to have very good outcomes and people have more fun doing what I'm doing. Um, and even in like, uh, I was involved with some rehab, uh, hamstring rehab with a, a Bundesliga team. And the approach there previously was like a walk jog for hamstring. And it took six to eight weeks to get somebody back. Whereas if you use a sprint based approach, we have guys back in like seven to 14 days. And because you're getting them to sprint, 
or do drills and running stuff right away, not a walking and jogging, you know, approach there, they see mentally that I am much closer to being on the field. So um, from a mental health and psychological point of view, you develop momentum right away because they're like, okay, I can run 10 yards or 10 meters. Okay. That's closer to what they're doing on the practice field. And they feel much better about their outcomes or the prospect of their outcomes because you're getting them to run, right? This is what we have to do. Um, and then once we get them back on the field, there was no re-injury problem because every day we're running and accelerating. So say you do, um, you know, say you do 40 reps, 40 repetitions of 10 meter runs. Well, you do that every day for five days, right? You know, now we're, now we're into hundreds of reps um, and we're doing more repetitions than would happen if they were healthy in practice at a higher velocity. So when they get back to, you know, okay, we got to play him. They don't have to do like 20 minutes and then 30 minutes. They could jump on the, a couple of guys jump back on the pitch and they played 60 to 90 minutes the first time back because we had trained them, right? We had not, we didn't rehab them. We trained them the whole time. So I think that's, that's the value in, in the approach that I bring is that we do treat you as like, maybe somebody who's untrained and we just train you back into shape. Um, and obviously we're very careful about pain and contraindicated activities, but I think that's the mindset that we kind of breed into everybody we work with is, okay, you got hurt socks or you just had a surgery. Well, we're going to train you back into shape. You know, there's no discussion of rehab or that word. It's all about training. And we try to get them back into the training stream with everybody else who's able-bodied as quickly as possible. And it just seems to work a lot more efficiently. No, that's fantastic. Just listening to how you describe that sort of approach and, and thought process, you can, you can hear, and especially from an athlete's perspective, the focus on returning them to play or returning them to sport as opposed to how's the injury feeling? How does this feel? What's, and obviously there's an element of that that goes into it, but it just seems like that focus on this is the activity you're going to be doing. So we're going to prepare you for that in a controlled manner, as opposed to the hypersensitivity around the injury site and exercises that are constantly focused on isolation and, and, and strength focus of that, that joint or, or tissue. Um, it, I can see how the language can really be quite receptive to the athletic populations as yeah, well. Yeah. It's very fear-based conventionally, right? It's like, Oh, we don't get much to get hurt. Be careful. Right. Where, I could argue that I am much more careful and much more um, cautious because of how I plan things and how I progress things, but I'm not sitting there like, you know, holding, you know, hoping that you do, don't hurt yourself. Like I know for, through experience that you're going to be fine. And so there's no, um, there's no hint of fear or gloom and doom around what we're doing. Whereas I know, you know, other athletes have told me about like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. And then all of a sudden they throw them on the field. We need you. It's like, wait a minute. You just been sheltering this person and now you want them to produce, you know, I need to see them handle some load and stress over several days or weeks before I put them back on the field and you've just sheltered, sheltered ice, whatever, you know, passive therapy and then you throw them on the field because you're feeling the heat that they need to be back on the field right so yeah you were constantly i'm constantly testing every day through the work that i prescribe yeah no i love it and i love the again the emphasis on experience you, you cannot beat it and you cannot beat that body of evidence that you've obviously created from from your diverse range of experiences if we were to, to harness that sort of experience and just grab the crystal ball for a minute, um, these might be tricky, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. Um, where do you think sort of training performance will move to or, or is moving to, whether it be from a technological perspective or a training perspective? From everything that you're exposed to at the moment, what sort of path do you see it going on? I have no clue, right? I Like I kind of know where I want to put my emphasis, but as far as... Like certainly there is, uh, you know, this greater emphasis on the value or the perceived value of technology, right? So my hope would be that we get better at using technology to, to help us um, rather than constrain us. Um, 
and 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 also um, use technology in order to you know have more of a performance-based model as opposed to a fear-based model um so and there's something to be said for pushing people a little bit here and there and letting them redline a little bit um and not be or operating from a fear-based approach because again the more that you back off you're like oh let's sit this guy another game let's sit you know there's a detraining component to all of this right so the more you back off and the more you load manage them the more it's going to be a problem in the long run they're going to detrain and you know you look back uh, again if we go back to the nba example i was looking at examples where there were um you know playoff uh injuries that that really determine the outcome of of a playoff and i think magic johnson had like a hamstring pull back in like the 80s and that was one of the only significant ones i could find maybe somebody rolled an ankle or kareem abdul jabbar rolled an ankle or something but now um there's injuries are deciding the outcomes of, of playoffs all the time. So I think, um, you know, we have to be careful. They did not load manage people back in the day and basketball was way more physical, right? There's less three point shots. There's more work inside and dumping it in and more bodies smashing into each other yet, you know, they seem to have less problems with injuries. So I think we have to be really careful about how we're using science to inform us of you know you know progress or whatever you want to call it but are managing the situation um and we have to get people back to training and 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 in that performance-based model and i think for some reason whether it's fear or liability or you know whatever it is the culture the culture has changed and um you know, agents, you know, again, maybe it's the money, maybe it's people are making so much money right now that, you know, I don't want to get hurt. Uh, I don't want to do more because, you know, I want to, you know, we just have to flip the mindset around this. It's like, if you do more, if you do more of the right thing, it can be better for you. Certainly if we want you to play more games, that isn't a healthy decision. Right. But if we want you to spend more time like in the NFL offseason, I think one of the big problems is that they do a lot of practice like they have, you know, four weeks of uh, um, OTAs, which is essentially practice for football when it could be just, you know, they have two weeks of strength and conditioning, then another three weeks of strength and conditioning with individual skill work and and then they have four weeks of practice. It should be the opposite. It should be four weeks of just strength and conditioning, three weeks of combined, and maybe two weeks of practice. They flipped it the wrong way. But the people who have all the power are the coaches and they want more sports specific stuff so we can prepare and um, you know, I can dazzle people with my playbook and all that stuff. Um, so there has to be some changes around um, where the emphasis is and unfortunately, the physical preparation people are at the low end of that hierarchy. And so um, when I, I spoke to somebody at the NFL uh, head office and I said, well, you know, they need to expand the amount of training they do. And they said, well, the coaches would never go for that. The head coaches would never go for that. And so you can see who's driving the ship. Right. Um, and, and it's just the wrong people are making those decisions right now. Um, so as far as the industry goes in terms of performance, until we can get a, a reasonable say at the table, we're always going to be, um, you know, kind of the, the low person on the totem pole. And I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to say like science will help us, right? Science will make it better. And this number shows that we have to pull back or whatever it is. Right. But I, I just don't think that's in the long run that we have to have, you know, more power, at the head table, you know, I don't know how you do that, but, uh, right now, you know, it's not that it's fake science, but in terms of the impact it's having, it is pretty ineffective right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great insight. I love the reflection on history as well. The the examples of of the NBA is a great one where, well, Hey, they didn't actually have that many injury problems back then. And where maybe there's a few things we can learn from that. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know if it's the same in other sports like AFL, like, is it the same? Like they seem to still have lots of ACLs and lots of hamstrings. Right. So, um, I, I don't know. 
I, I you know, globally, uh, I don't think it's, it's improved. I can't think of one instance where it's like, yeah, it's way better. Like every time, all I do is I Google a hamstring and then you see like, oh, baseball, soccer, basketball, like you name it. You can find a hamstring anywhere now. I have a strained hamstring. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting one. Like obviously I work in the Australian Football League and it is an interesting one. It definitely is a focus. My personal thoughts is that we're eliminating other things going wrong. So it almost, the last one, the last things we're left with is, is these muscle strains and hamstring strains and concussions are never moving one as well. Um, and also there's more attention on it too. So I think, you know, perhaps we just weren't reporting on it as much, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So there's more awareness. There's, there's those sort of, I guess, psychosocial, social elements that, that go into it as well, as opposed to just the um, what's physically happening. Um, but yeah, it's probably a, a whole nother um podcast on that topic continuing um continuing down the predictive methods and i'm nearly done i promise I won't take any more of your time um covid is obviously still around us and, and it's different in every country and everyone's going to be meeting from across the world for the olympic games do you have any predictions i guess um firstly from a performance perspective if you see if you you anticipate you know lots of world records or, or not really many at all or um, injuries or um, any individual performances you're interested to, to follow? Have you been keeping a close eye on that? Um, it seems like COVID hasn't dampened any of the push for world records, right? It seems like, you know, if you look at the um, recent weeks, you know, there there's records that have fallen that have been up like the, the men's um, 400 meter hurdle record was almost 30 years old. And a guy from Norway uh, beat it pretty handily, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know what the explanation is. Is it like we've had different explanations? It's the shoes, right? The shoes are better or more springy. Uh, the tracks are better. Uh, the surfaces are better. Um, maybe they have less stress around training they can just focus on training more because they don't have to travel you know there's all these different scenarios maybe drug testing is worse i don't know or not as you know as effective so heading into the olympic games i i'm pretty much expecting anything um will the the fact that they don't have much in the way of crowds affect it i don't think so it doesn't seem to have affected it um i and i think the equipment piece is important, at least in track and field. Um, and again, there was like a shot put world record. The guy obliterated uh, Randy Barnes's record in the shot put, that, which was again, I think it was like over 30 years. So, um, you know, it's very hard to explain. Like, has training improved that much? You know, I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much expecting anything. I'm expecting, uh, you know, a handful of world records probably in, you might see it in swimming. You might see it in track and field. Um, I'm sure you'll see something in weightlifting that you haven't seen before. Um, so I don't know. I, I just, um, it's always nice to see world records, but at some point, um, you know, you got to ask yourself, why are these happening? Is it training advances? And from what we've discussed here, um, there's some people doing some good things out there training wise, but you know, I, I just don't think it's advanced as much as people might think or like to think, um, you know, um, maybe it is moving into more specificity is, is, is yielded this, um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 again, I'll be watching and I'll be, um, interested to see what happens in certain events, whether it's the sprint events, which I focus on or the field events. Um, but even in some of the distance events, you know, we may see some things. And again, I think the longer the run is, the more something like a shoe can make a difference. So maybe we won't see it in the hundred meters, but especially, you know, Usain Bolt's records are pretty difficult to, to beat, but, but I think in something like a 400 or 400 hurdles or an 800, uh, maybe it's much more attainable, just like, you know, um, you know, the, the, Oscar Pistorius uh, with the artificial legs, he wasn't as good at the hundred, but at the 400, he gets more steps in fatigue is less of an issue, right? When you have a spring in your leg, um, you'll take advantage of that from an endurance point of view. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know what's going to happen with the, with the shoes, if they'll regulate it more, but you know, these companies are paying the bills. So what are you going to do? Cut their head off and, you know, 
You know, the Olympics wants to make money. Japan doesn't want to lose money, right? This is costing a lot of money to do all this. So um, we'll see what happens. Well, and then, then, then you got the Winter Olympics the year later, which will be interesting and what the fallout's going to be of all of this. Um, but yeah, I, I'm certainly interested. Yeah, awesome. And I'm, I'm sure you'll put some great analysis and, and information up online as well as you always do. Um, Derek, thank you so much for your time today. Your, your wisdom is, is, um, comes right through in, in all your responses and, and your thought process. If people want to tap into more about um, the work you do and what you offer, where's the best place for them to go? Courses, websites, coaching, that sort of stuff. Yeah, like the I do try to put a lot of stuff on the Instagram page at, at Derek M. Hansen. Um, and then I have like an at running mechanics, uh, for my courses on Instagram, but then the, the two websites I have are sprintcoach.com, which is more geared towards, um, consulting, whether it's individuals or teams. And then uh, I have the running mechanics.com, which is my specific courses. And I've slowly been, you know, converting to virtual courses. Uh, hopefully maybe this fall we'll have, you know, a few more in person as we, you know, I get my second vaccination uh, this next weekend in a week. So maybe I'll be able to travel in uh, a couple of months. So we'll see. We'll see how it evolves. Again, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I'm trying to see, you know, where things are going to head and uh, work. And I, I can expand, expand my influence in a meaningful way and reach people. So uh, that's fantastic. We'll definitely link all those in the show notes. Um, and you've, you've had a great impact on, on myself, even through your, your own social media work and, and that. So I gratefully uh, appreciate the work you've done and for jumping on today. So thank you so much for your time, Derek. Um, we'll have to keep in touch and I'm interested to, to follow the rest of your work and um, hopefully come across for one of your courses one day. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Great questions. And thanks for being flexible with the time as well. No worries at all, Derek. Take care. Thank you.